Wednesday uh, was a very significant date on the church calendar, and it was hinted here. I didn't know I'd get that kind of intro, so I thought maybe there'd be a bit more probing. What, what's going on right now? What season is it in the church calendar? It's Lent. Good. Uh, Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, right? Uh, and that's observed as the first day of Lent. Anybody here observing Lent? Anybody want to put up their hand or not put up the Yeah, okay, good. We got some people observing Lent. That's great. Uh, it was already mentioned today what people might do. for. So uh, anyway, I thought it would be fun today to find out how much we know about Lent as a collective. Okay, how like old school or high church we are. All right, so let's start with a, uh, let's start with a, uh, let's start with a, uh, Let's, it, it worked. I swear, it worked right before coffee break. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, no, okay, let's try this. It, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I know what happened. The first slide is the last. It sounds scriptural. The first slide is the last slide. <laughs> and therefore, it wouldn't advance because there was no more slides to go. There we go. Don't count that against my time. That was... <laughs> there we go. Land quiz. <laughs> That's what should happen. <laughs> All right. So, ready? Just, just shout it out. We're, again, we're all on the same team here. It's a safe place. So what do observers of the season of Lent typically do? Fast, or was mentioned, give up something, right? Give up something. Good, okay, 100% so far. <laughs> okay, uh, give up. Second one, when was Lent first instituted? It's me, guys. You know it's going to be history. We're just, it's going to be history class this morning. Any, 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 when was Lent first? Oh, you're close. This is, if this is like Price is Right, anybody want to see which way you're supposed to go? Fourth century. Fourth century, yes, good. Getting warmer. Anybody want to venture the year now? Three? Three sixteen. Farther away. <laughs> okay. It, it was at a little event called the Council of Nicaea. All right. And when was the Council of Nicaea, everybody? All the Christian bishops of the known Western world uh, getting together in 325. This is, so this is an old thing. Okay. Uh, okay. How, one more. How long does the season of Lent last? Oh, you're, you're all wrong. Everyone's wrong. <laughs> Except, why do you know that? <laughs> Oh, yeah, okay, wow, but you remember. <laughs> 46, because, and you can tell she went to a Protestant seminary. 46 for Protestants. Catholics do it different. <laughs> 44 days, okay? All right, so sorry we set you up for that one. Uh, you'll get a chance to shout 40 in a few more questions. Uh, what does the English word Lent mean? I, yes, that's incredible. You, I, when I, I didn't know this, I thought it would be something really spiritual. It just means spring, like want, want. <laughs> All right, Lent. <laughs> okay, good. It just means it just means spring. Uh, since when has Lent begun on Ash Wednesday? 
Remember, Lent was instituted in 325. <laughs> 326, good guess. Good guess. <laughs> All right, I've already lost everyone. <laughs> 1970, guys. When the Jackson 5 were topping the charts and the BGs were warming up. That's when... <laughs> That's when Lent began on Ash Wednesday. So it's like, this is an ancient thing, but then also not. Uh, okay, and then here we go. How many days of fasting make up the season of Lent? Forty. Okay, good. Good. Okay. And if you're asking why 46, 44, 40, we don't have time for that. Uh, so just, just go ask, some, ask your parents. <laughs> So I want to, uh, well, I guess the last question is, yeah, I got one more. <laughs> Why is Lent 40 days of fasting? Oh, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now I don't even need to be here if you start saying that. Uh, <laughs> Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, right? Maybe my picture, man, this is, this is a smart bunch. Okay, good. It's modeled after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Okay, so we're talking today about the ultimate. I mean, because it's Lenten season and, and we, we do know a lot, which is awesome. I, I, but I, I do have some questions. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about Jesus kicking off, you know, what we call his ministry, the three, the three years, uh, the stories in the Gospels of him as an itinerant revolutionary in and around Palestine in the first century. And what kicked it off was this episode in the wilderness. And so I want to explore how millions of Christians observe uh, Lent. In fact, some people who aren't even Christian, just spiritual, you know, want to get involved in, in Lent. It's centuries-old tradition, started in 325. Um, but if Lent is patterned after the story of Jesus in the wilderness, maybe it's helpful to go back there and take a peek at like the inaugural event and what that might have been trying to say. And so uh, what did the person writing the story of Jesus in the wilderness, because he wasn't being followed around by a stenographer or a video, a YouTube team, right? He went out there alone in the story. Uh, and, and, and so what happened out there? What did the people who tell the stories about him say happened in this prototypical uh, Lent? Was it some sort of like cosmic showdown? Was it, you know, the dark side versus the light side? Uh, was the intention of the story to show that Jesus can win a duel, something like that? Uh, or is there more going on? And what is going on? So I just thought this would be the perfect uh, week to explore that. Why should we care about Lent, but about what Jesus did in the wilderness? And, and why should you care about me talking about it? Uh, hopefully I get to answer that. Um, so let me answer before I lose you. I have some good news and some bad news this morning. The good news uh, is that we're about to see in this story three major theological debates and existential crises that humanity seemed to face and be asking. Um, 
Yeah, and, and so that's why I say it's good news because it's like Matthew makes a story about these things that they were thinking about and asking in the first century. These huge questions. And Matthew's like, oh, I, I can write something about that, something that happened with the greatest figure in Western civilization, Jesus. So that's perfect. Uh, so the good news must be that 2,000 years ago, if there's a story and it's in the ether and it's being addressed directly, uh, they're resolved, right? <laughs> uh, so that's where uh, I have some bad news this morning, uh, is that the questions and the problems are just as relevant today, which like, makes, I guess, my sermon relevant, but uh, it's, kind of dis- it's kind of a bummer that this didn't get sorted as well <laughs> as we might have hoped. But I do want like, uh, the good news to sort of outweigh the bad this morning. So uh, if you're interested in nothing else, as I'm talking this morning, and, and we're going to see three things happen with Jesus, I want you to see if you can identify, because I'm going to read the passages, the, uh, the theological debate that might be happening, and try to put your finger on the existential crisis of humanity that is happening and being addressed in these stories. And, and, and I do want to kind of unpack them together. Uh, odds are, it's a 2,000-year-old plus issue. We're not going to solve it this morning, uh, but we are maybe going to be able to have some wonderful takeaways. And the setups this morning with the band and the story and everything can give you a sense of, of where we're going. It's just amazing the way the synergy happens. So are you ready to go on a temptation adventure? <laughs> Sounds like I should mention Valentine's Day or something. Anyway. So, let's go to the source of the stories, the Gospels. Uh, Anytime you look at any of the Gospels, any of them, it's best to know the agenda of the Gospel writer, the, the, the person who wrote. Now, they're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We don't want to get into too much of that, but uh, there was a writer or writers of these stories that may have had those names, probably not, but the writers had a thesis, a particular angle they were coming at, and I'm just going to, this is my favorite, me- one of my favorite Jesus memes, I think. Uh, so it says, listen carefully, people, if you can't see it at the back. I don't want like four versions of this going around. Uh, but that's exactly what we have, <laughs> is four versions of these stories, all wildly different. Uh, and so that is something we have to discuss anytime we're talking about any story from the Gospels. So I don't want to get into all four today and uh, who had a particular angle on what or the agenda. But suffice it to say, three of the Gospels mention Jesus in the wilderness scene, and they are all different. Mark is the very first gospel written. I have no idea why it wasn't put first in the you know, New Testament, we call it. That would have made things a lot nicer. Uh, but Mark tells the story very briefly. Okay, and here is what, here is his version. At once, God's Spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by the Satan. He was with the wild animals, and messengers attended him. And then he goes on to the next thing. Uh, So, uh, if you wanted like an exciting blow-by-blow narrative of what happened in the wilderness with Jesus, this this ain't it, right? This is not, can you do a sermon out of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are a couple of things I want to mention here. Uh, (laughs) We're not going to camp here, but uh, let's start with the elephant in the room. The elephant, of course, being uh, the Satan. (laughs) Um... There we go. 
Your Bibles are all going to say something a bit different here. The Greek has different words in every version, and that's because we don't really freaking know what this thing is. Uh, Everybody's going to have a different idea of it. There has been no photos of Satan captured yet to date that we know, uh, which is why we need an artistic uh, (laughs) expression of it. Um, So... This is the word Zatan or Diablos uh, or Hasatan in Hebrew. One really interesting thing is it has the, uh, the article the in front of it. So the Satan. And that's why I put that in there. Your Bible probably won't do that. Uh, but in Hebrew, it, it's literally a word for lawyer, which I'm sorry if you're a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but that, that's where kind of the negative association comes in. The Satan, Hasatan, Ha is the in Hebrew. Hasatan is the when you were brought in front of a court, the accuser, basically the prosecuting attorney, uh, is, would, was the Satan. So <laughs> I, I don't know the etymology. We're not going to get into that. But basically, it's kind of the opposition, the adversary, the one who brings an accusation. And so I don't want to get too hung up, you know, in popular culture, this temptation, I mean, it's a guy with wings or maybe not pitchfork or there's this sense of like he arrives as a being. And I would say uh, we probably want to get away from that. If you believe in that, that's fine. You don't need to be dissuaded of that. But it's probably a bigger concept, almost like God is a bigger concept. The accuser, the voice, that that thing that we're all familiar with, that, that is bringing negativity to you. We kind of, in, in therapy, it's maybe called the inner critic, right? You're the thing that's saying you can't do it, or you shouldn't do it, or you should choose the bad thing. You should go to the thing that you know will be hurtful but benefit you. I mean, ancient cultures knew this. We're human beings. Everybody has it. We have it in common. And so that's why there's this use of the word the accuser, um, Uh, And so entropy, doubts, fears, anything like that, that voice, that voice that's causing you to choose maybe not the best way. So whatever it is, it does show up in the story of Jesus, and I think it's a great thing that Jesus is about to go on this epic world-changing quest, but there's that voice. You might say, like Dr. Freud might say, he went out to a modern version to be tempted by his id, you know, all the things that would want to mess things up. The only other thing I'll point out here is that in Mark, uh, and Rosie already said this, uh, we see a trope, 40, right? So there's a trope and a trope. The first trope is the hero of the story is going to get tested and going to wrestle. We see Abraham do this. We see Jacob do this. These are you got to have that in the stories. It's necessary. And then you have the 40-day thing, which constantly comes up in Hebrew literature. Uh, Anytime you see the number 40, what does it mean? Is it a good time or a bad time? (laughs) Like 40, nothing good happens in 40 days, right? So you had like in the Noah episode, how long did it rain? 
Yeah, okay. And, and, and then a few verses later, a different time. But that's, uh, that's the Bible for you. Uh, we'll stick with the 40. That was the correct answer for our intents and purposes here. Um, so uh, I just can't help myself, guys. Uh, and, and the Israelites wandered for 40 days in the wilderness. Moses went up on the Mount Sinai for 40 days. Wilderness, uh, sorry, Israelites, 40 years in the wilderness. So 40 is this number that means something, kind of a cosmic trouble is going to happen. Uh, and so anyway, that's Mark, and, and I don't have too much to work with, but the source material for the other Gospels, uh, they get a bit more creative. So um, Matthew, uh, written 15 years after Mark, he's going to blow this story out. He says, Mark, I see you, and I'm going to make this a whole lot better, okay? And what he is saying, his angle is that he's, he's Jewish, and he's writing to a Jewish audience, and he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, and in the same way that Yahweh was delivering the world through the Israelites, he's saying, this is Matthew's whole thesis, Jesus is the new Moses, and Jesus is delivering the world through, God is delivering, Yahweh is delivering the, the world through Jesus, through Israel. Okay, that, does that make sense? And so uh, that is his whole angle. And I'd say he did a really good job because we have a season called... Lent. Do you think we would have come up with Lent from Mark's little three sentences? No, we wouldn't, we wouldn't even have Lent. So Mark takes this story and adds a lot of layers, enter the theological debates that were happening in his time and the existential crisis. Let's get into it. Matthew, uh, Jesus doesn't just go out into the wilderness to get tempted in Matthew. There's a lot going on. Uh, let's start reading. Jesus was led up into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted by the accuser. Again, Satan, devil, whatever you want to say. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. And then the accuser came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, say that these stones should become bread. And he answered, It's written, A person does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That's what you'd call a sick burn, I think. Is that what the kids call it? Just like, no. So, did you spot the differences? Did you spot the differences? What was one of the differences you saw? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I did not consider that. That's not making it in. But thank you. That's really good. That, that's very likely. He, it's 40 days. He's hungry. There's a bit of a timeline thing. But that's the thing. He's, he's hungry this time. So that's a real key moment here. Uh, Matthew is like, okay, we'll make Jesus hungry in this story. And then he's like, hey, while we're talking about the hungry, what about everyone who's hungry? Now, you might wonder, how did I make that leap? Well, it's because of... Uh, Jesus's answer, a person doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. We don't know our Hebrew Bible as well as they would. If we don't go to synagogue every week and hear the things and get, you know, memorize it in school, but they would have known what that was taking you back to. And when Jesus quotes that, what is he referring to? He's referring to that wilderness scene, 40 hungry Israelites in the wilderness. And not just that, okay? There is something that happens when they are hungry. And of course, in the Roman world of the first century, everyone is freaking hungry. In fact, the emperors, the way to get on people's good side, they would do a grain dole. They would just be like, just bring some bread to the market square and hand it out because people were 
that it was that bad. That's how the emperors would get in good with the people. Bread day, right? Um, I don't know if we'd be great with, but we see that in refugee camps, grain doles, rice doles. That's the kind of thing that was happening in Rome. It was on everybody's mind. So now we're in it. The first real theological debate. What do you think the debate is that Matthew is addressing here? Put yourself back 2,000 years ago. Remember, the Jesus thing has happened. He's writing way after the Jesus thing. What are some things that, might, that people might be saying about Jesus or asking about Jesus that he did or did not do that you see here personified in a story? He's not scared. He's going for it. Either you're scared or you don't know, or what do you think? What do we think? What do we think? What? Yeah. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Good. Okay, good. We're getting angry here. That's good. <laughs> this, this would have been happening back then. This thought of like, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> the miracle worker, the God, and, and, and is Matthew turning away from this? Is Matthew scared of this idea of turning stone? Could, the question is, could he have turned stones into bread? And then there's the world hunger thing, and like, why isn't that solved? That's kind of a big deal. So the debate is, could Jesus have turned stones to bread? I feel like I want to survey the room. Uh, <laughs> who here thinks Jesus could have turned stones to bread? There isn't a wrong answer here. And who, who doesn't think that? Yeah, see? So with a little more time, <laughs> we might have gotten to like 50-50 or something. It's a debate. Could he have done it? Could he not have done it? We're not going to know, and that's not what we're trying to do here this morning. Um, what we're talking about here is that question, not just a theological debate, but an existential crisis about Jesus and every. they're still hungry. World hunger isn't solved. That is what's being addressed here. If Jesus were the Son of God, God's agent on earth, why didn't he take care of world hunger with the snap of a finger? All we can do is speculate. But wherever you come down on that debate, Jesus quoting Deuteronomy is not uh, looking away from the problem because, in fact, Jesus quotes the part in the... What happened in the wilderness when they were hungry? Do you remember? Man, bread literally fell from the sky. <laughs> and so if that's ever going to happen again, you would think it's when Jesus the Messiah shows up, snaps his fingers, and it starts snowing bread again, just like it, but it doesn't. And that seems to be a problem. Also, if you could snap your fingers and solve world hunger, would you do it? Or would you say, oh, but there's that verse in Deuteronomy that says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that's, oh, so I can't. <laughs> like, was, <laughs> is that the passage that, like, negates that possibility? No. So that is also strange, right? It's like, I don't think that's the smoking gun verse for not solving world hunger. We would probably, if we could snap bread into existence, make it happen. All that aside, whatever, we, whatever you come in down on that. Oh, I forgot, I forgot this. The kind of, Jesus turned stone to bread. I don't know if he could have done it. I don't, I don't know if we would have ever seen that. The only thing we do know is that Jesus never turned stones to bread, either because he couldn't or wouldn't. Jesus gave up turning stones to bread for Lent. He gave up on the specter of single-handedly 
feeding the masses. Next, the accuser or Jesus' inner critic or whatever you want to call it takes him to there, the holy city, and places him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he'll direct his angels and they'll raise you up on their hands so you won't strike your footing against a stone. Jesus said, you're not to put the Lord your God to the test. Now, I always thought the pinnacle of the temple was like a dome and then Jesus somehow floated down on top. It didn't really make sense to me. I don't know where I got that idea. Probably Renaissance art. <laughs> but of course, it's a little bit more elegant than that. The pinnacle of the temple was actually uh, one of the highest balconies of the temple that you would go to. Kind of like when the queen or somebody is celebrating their birthday, the king. You know, the way the family stands out and everybody sees them. That's more what it was. It was called the pinnacle or one of the pinnacles. And basically, the temptation here is to go up and make a bit of a spectacle and then maybe even throw yourself off and get saved because apparently that's going to happen. Another not-so-fun fact about this spot is apparently Jesus' brother was taken up to the pinnacle of the temple and thrown off, and that's how he met his demise. So it's like a little on the nose, this story, um, because it would have just happened around that time. So Jesus is crucified, martyred, not saved, James and many others like him, literally thrown off the pinnacle of the temple, not saved. Getting a sense of the theological debate here? Theological debate. <laughs> what is it? It's this. Uh, that's not happening. There's no saving from martyrdom. There's no spectacle. Jesus is not the superhero, apparently, that we all need. So just like the first question, Jesus' answer is a scripture from Deuteronomy. Matthew's really banging away at the Moses thing here again. Don't put God to the test. But a better, a better translation of that is don't challenge God's authority. This now is hearkening back to another time where the Israelites are in the wilderness and they are thirsty and they're complaining. Anybody remember this scene when they're thirsty and they're complaining? Do they just have to stuff it? No, they're given the water they need. Moses hits a rock, and they are actually given everything they need. I love how Matthew's leaning right into this and pointing to other times where magical things happen that don't seem to be happening or have happened with Jesus. And so he paints this scene of Jesus having to, say it with me now, give up being the superhero that we all want. You would think that would be enough, but no, he's really going for it. A third, a third panel. He takes him up and says, I'll give you all these if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus says, get away, adversary. It's written you're to worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Finally, the adversary leaves. Okay, that, that's what did it. Now, there are a couple of interesting things here. First of all, the assumption is that the same voice that animates that greed and that doubt and that fear in your head is the one that is controlling everything. That's a whole thing. That'll preach. Uh, that's a whole thing. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, but can you spot the theological debate here and the existential crisis? What's the theological debate here? The temptation is for Jesus to set up, yeah, own everything, set up a kingdom, set up an order that we all like that will make sense, that will be just, and all the things, maybe even all the Hebrew Bible things, everything that we want. Could Jesus have set up a Christian empire? 
Anybody think he could have? Anybody think he couldn't have, even if he tried? It's interesting, right? I don't know. doesn't matter. He gave that up. And that annoys a lot of us. <laughs> and it's no different in the first century. Why didn't that happen? So for every no, there's also a yes. So I want to go back and round up. You might be saying, well, wait a second. Feeding the hungry is important. Jesus said no to solving world hunger. But what about that episode with the bread? Jesus fed 5,000 people. So do you remember how that story goes? Everybody's out there. They're all hungry. The disciples say, we're all hungry. And Jesus says, good thing I have my bread maker, Matic 5,000 right here. And he starts like cranking out bread. Is that what happened? No. Right? What happened was, this is Matthew actually making better on his repudiation of what Jesus said. Uh, uh, what happened in the wilderness, the giving up that Jesus did. One boy comes forward with a lunch and shares it. And then more and more and more food starts coming out of the crowd, right? The, the miracle here is a miracle of redistribution. You know, Jesus is a catalyst for finding abundance among us. So when Jesus said no to like snap, 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 solve world hunger, could he have done it? I don't know. Who cares? But what we do see later is plenty and abundance among the people who are following the way. That is fascinating. Second thing Jesus said no to, of course, is being uh, an exalted superhero who um, irrefutable evidence that he's just the best. Nobody can deny it. All right, it's time to surrender yourself to Jesus. And you might say, okay, well, what about the resurrection? Didn't Jesus ultimately finally get his day? Right? Well, here's an interesting thing about the resurrection. Two things, first of all. <laughs> And I mentioned this last time. People loved it. So I put it back again, right? Like, if people love it, why not put it back again? Uh, this uh, painting <laughs> of Jesus leaving. So even if you say, oh, the resurrection was Jesus' big moment, and it kind of undoes what he did in the wilderness, absolutely not, because he freaking just left afterwards, right? So even if this was God's way of saying, no, Jesus, this is, what, this is the right way, he's like, no, thank you, okay? So he really gave it up. He gave it up twice, okay? Jesus is not physically in a body here. We can't go line up at the Jesus Center and see him and get the thing we want. So there's that. Second, this is probably a whole Easter sermon, the word resurrection is a collective noun. So when I say, I don't want to get too grammary here, when I say the word flock, how many things are there? Multiple, right? You don't say a flock of one, one bird. How about herd? How about people? Okay, see the pattern here? The word resurrection is a word, and it's a concept that was floating around at the time of Jesus, even before he was on the scene. The word resurrection, Pharisees were talking about it, it was a Jewish speculation in the Second Temple period, but the word resurrection means it's going to happen to everybody. There's no, it can't happen to one person. The same way a flock can't be one thing, bird. Okay? So, when Jesus was resurrected, that's why you see all the icons. Jesus is always pulling others out. It's all of humanity. Anybody, every, the whole world is resurrected. That's what Jesus is trying to proclaim. That's the Christian message in the earliest iterations of it. 
And so what Jesus was saying yes to here was not resuscitation. Okay, that's what happened on like Lazarus. He was dead. He came alive. He died again a few years later. He's not still around. Nobody's seen Lazarus, right? So the resurrection is this idea of a new humanity, that there's a new age of aliveness in God by following the way that Jesus demonstrated being animated by God and empowered uh, to live in a way where God is ruling by service among us to neighbor, the poor, the outcast, the immigrant, the discriminated against, the exploited, even the enemy. That's what the resurrection is, which is a segue into the third thing that Jesus said no to and gave up, which is a world order, a, a country, a kingdom. That would just be great where everything was done right, right? A Christian nationalism. Could he have done it? I don't know, but he gave it up. And this is the part where I said, but maybe you're saying, yeah, but what about, and unfortunately there's no but what about. You could say, like, what about 16th century Geneva when John Calvin set up a Christian order and started burning people at the stake who disagreed with him? That's not ideal, right? Uh, this has been tried. What about Constantine? What about the United States of America? Any Christian nation, it's been tried. It's not working. Okay, so it's crazy that Jesus gave up on this goal and this dream that we keep thinking we can set up. We'll make it work. Jesus said no to it, but we can do it. That is absolutely nuts. Instead, Jesus showed us, I mean, he took the lowliest form of a servant. So when Jesus says, hey, you, you, you know, worship nobody else and serve God, Sometimes we hear that, and like when I grew up, that meant go to church every Sunday or something like that. You know, worship God and serve God. Follow the rules of this church. Or it actually means wash the feet. Take the position of a lo the lowliest servant. That's when Jesus washes his feet before the crucifixion. That is what he's demonstrating. Service. Service to God is service to neighbor. And of course, that's why he gave up being an emperor. Man, why do we keep trying? So, bringing this home, 15 years later, Luke, guy with another agenda, another gospel, whoever wrote that, says it even better than Matthew. Matthew renovates Mark. Luke renovates Matthew. If you want to go get a harmony gospel or something this afternoon, you can do that. But there's another story later in Luke that is just awesome because this question is still in the ether when Luke is writing his gospel 15 years later, and so he makes a story where the Pharisees, it's not in any other gospel, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, when will the rule of God finally be established on the earth? This would have been a debate at the time, an existential crisis. When? Now, 2,000 years later, they couldn't have known. We're still reading that and still waiting for that and still asking that. That's why I say it's, it couldn't be more relevant. But Jesus' answer, so people come to him and say, just, just enough juice to get me through the next few minutes. Here. Come on. There we go. When asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said the rule of God will not come with observable signs. Nor will people say, look, here it is. There it is. Because you see, the rule of God is in your midst. Is, is this ambiguous? <laughs> doesn't seem ambiguous to me. What has the world been hoping for ever since Luke's gospel? Still, people who follow Jesus, still a hero 
to drop the answers from the sky with our basic needs. A hero to drop from the sky and become the public figurehead that we finally need. The leader that Gotham City needs. <laughs> Still waiting for that. Uh, we're waiting for like the country to be set up. The, the thing that will finally work. That will be a beacon. We'll do it right. We'll figure it out. Human beings have been doing that. Jesus followers have been doing that. Jesus would magic, magically fix world hunger, we think, maybe, or be the undeniable superhero, or set up the kingdom we want. But that's what Jesus was tested with during that first Lent. And it's what we are tested with every day, I would say. Jesus gave up what we want so badly. And then he comes back and he spends a few years from that episode in the desert demonstrating the way, and we say that doesn't feel big enough. So I couldn't believe when Janelle said those words this morning in her book. Sometimes it doesn't feel big enough. I planned to say that. It's right here. <laughs> Jesus, the thing you're doing just doesn't feel big enough. Margaret Mead said, of course, anybody can quote this probably before I even say it, if you're familiar with it, never doubt a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world because indeed that's the only thing that ever has. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world because indeed that's the only thing that ever has. But it just doesn't feel big enough, does it, for the, the questions and the problems we face. Jesus said, don't look at me, look at the way that I'm showing you. Look to the rule of God right there among you. And we say, it just doesn't feel big enough though. It doesn't feel adequate to the challenges facing us. That's why I love this painting by a Russian painter, Ivan Kramskoy. This is the way of Jesus. This is, this is how the way of Jesus feels most days, right? <laughs> Can I get an amen even as we try to set up a warming center or so, whatever it is in the town or in your life? You just feel kind of like, oh my gosh. <laughs> it's not a new feeling and it's not a new problem. We say to ourselves, is feeding this person enough? Is helping that person enough? Is loving that person enough? Shouldn't it be some bigger plan? Based on what Jesus gave up and what he said yes to, absolutely not. That's why the consensus of the Gospels is what you think feels big is actually small. And what seems really small is actually everything. Service, love, and sharing. So for Lent, I don't want you to think I'm here saying, don't give, you know, if you're giving up social media or chocolate or exercise, <laughs> keep, keep, just give that up. Take a, take a break from whatever you need. Uh, Lent is good for that. But it's also what we need Lent to do is to really remind the world and every one of us what Jesus stood for. Re resistance not only to oppression and injustice and violence, but also resistance to the idea that God is going to swoop in and save us from ourselves and do it for us without us. That's not... We have the benefit of 2,000 years after these folks are writing these stories and we're still in the same boat. But the answer is the same. We need a group of people, that's what Jesus was saying, who have the courage to stand up and say... Yes, we feed the hungry, 
despite what it does to our property values. <laughs> yes, we resist power and serve every neighbor, friend and enemy alike, with humility. Despite big personalities that come along and tell us they're going to make things great again. And yes, we accept, we accept that the only kingdom or commonwealth or republic or country or nation, however you want to say, the only one worth truly believing in is the divine one that is already right here among us. It was pretty clear to them. We've just got to see if we have the belief in it to get on board. It seems like it could be a beautiful thing, and maybe it's just that's all the beauty we're looking for. That's what I have this morning. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>